0: Good morning, Village Church. All right. I, I'm going to have a big challenge this morning because all week long, I was Olsi Mike, and uh, he had a wonderful, uh, no, not wonderful, it was terrible, uh, Australian accent, wallabies. so it's going to be very challenging for me not to go into that accent, so if I do, forgive me for that, I'm not trying to be offensive, but um, my wife would be like, why are you still talking in this accent? It's super weird. Be normal. and um, Not happening. Uh, My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here. We are through the month of July in a series on worship music. And our goal is that we want to give God as much glory as humanly possible. Uh, We don't want to just do that in prayer. We don't want to just do that in the teaching of God's Word, in our fellowship, and eating a whole bunch of food between services. Amen, right? We want to, whatever we do, we want to give God as much glory as possible. And so we have this joy. Every week we come together, we lift our voices, and we sing our amazing God. And so this whole series is kind of aimed at equipping us and encouraging us that when we sing, that we, from our hearts, from our soul, give God glory. Now, what I want to do is I want to read to you um, a section from an article that I recently read on generational wealth. And so here's what the article said. The generation that earns the wealth is the generation that worked and experienced hardships to make sure they achieve something better for themselves. They work hard and diligently save to achieve their goals. The second generation, while growing up, sees their parents' struggles and have a good understanding of the value of sacrifice and hard work. While they may be more comfortable as adults, they can still remember the frugal aspects of their lives growing up. But the third generation never realizes the struggles and sacrifices the previous generations endured. The only thing they know is a life of plenty. They have a real lack of understanding of what is needed to create and maintain the lifestyle they have grown accustomed to. Now, I want you to listen to this last sentence. It is estimated that 70% of wealthy families will lose their wealth by the second generation. And 90% will lose it by the third. There is a word that perfectly describes the 90%. The word is entitlement. And there are so many great definitions of entitlement, but here's one I love. Believing someone is required to give me that which I don't deserve. Now, how many of you would love to be entitled in this room? Anybody? Of course. Nobody wants to be entitled, but it's almost like if you grow up in this country, there is something in your soul that is drawn toward entitlement. So when entitlement is uncensored, because most of the time we censor kind of the real condition of our heart, when entitlement is uncensored, here are the kinds of things it says. I deserve this. You owe me. People don't say this out loud generally. Sometimes they do. But this is sort of the cry of the entitled heart. In its worst moments, give it to me. And when things fail, entitlement says, I am not responsible the perpetual victim. It is always someone else's fault. Symptoms include a complaining spirit manifested through whining, criticism, negativity, grumpiness, and or bitterness. Symptoms include a demanding spirit requiring my will to be accomplished. Again, Most of the time, we censor these comments, but we have very strategic and often manipulative ways of ensuring that we get our will accomplished. Symptoms include willful sin. I wrote this out because I want you to see it and I want you to process this. Willful sin, assuming and exploiting forgiveness from authorities. This could be your parents, it could be your boss, or your God. Believing oneself to be exempt from responsibility so that when we sin and are held accountable or disciplined, we're in shock. How could you? And there's this innate sense, I am above being held responsible so that when God does intervene and discipline us, we go, how could you? You say you're a God of love but then you discipline me when I sin. It doesn't feel good. I deserve to feel good. Again, nobody in this room wants to be entitled. But do you begin to start to see how entitlement creeps into your mind and your heart? Oh, are you raising children or grandchildren? Do you start to see entitlement in the heart and the mind of your kids? You would think that people who would have inherited such wealth would be above this, but studies show otherwise. Let me tell you the one group of people who has the right to be entitled: small children. So let's get real. entitlement. It is the attitude of a physical child, it is the attitude of an emotional child, and/or the attitude of a narcissist. Now raise your hand if you've ever struggled with entitlement. Both hands? <laughs> Entitlement begins to get particularly ugly in late adolescence. When you when you get into your 20s, if it's still there, it's and then when you find entitlement in adult men and women, the older they are, the uglier it is. Like here's just a little life tip: Do you want friends? Don't be entitled. Nobody ever says, Oh, they're really entitled. I want to be closer with them. That's not how it works. Because entitlement is ugly and demanding and it's not servant-hearted and it's not what we really want in our heart of hearts and the people we surround ourselves with. Nor do we want anybody to say that we ourselves are entitled. And yet as believers in Jesus, we have a strong temptation to this. I would say there's probably one group of people who've inherited the greatest wealth in all of human history. And that group of people would be true, sincere believers in Jesus Christ. And if that statement lands as a cliche to you, I would contend with you, and I mean nothing actually negative by this. You might be a child in the faith. Because what we have inherited through faith in Jesus Christ is beyond anything we could possibly possibly imagine. Right now, we get just a glimpse, just a taste of the riches and the grace that God has lavished on us. And when we die and face Jesus and realize that we deserved hell and that we get a new earth where the riches of God are lavished upon the children of God forever, it will blow our minds. The surpassing riches of God's grace lavish on us. Here's what they do. Two things. Number one, they make us as Christians more prone than anybody else on the planet to entitlement. And number two, it is the ugliest when it's found in the church. Because we of all people, like we are saved on this foundational fact— I don't deserve forgiveness or salvation. It is all of grace, 100% of God, 0% of me. How on God's green earth, then, do we fall into entitlement? So can we just agree? Nobody wants this. We don't want physical entitlement. We don't want spiritual entitlement. We want to rise above this. So let's get to the good stuff. Uh, the book of Colossians gives us, I think, one of the most wonderful antidotes to spiritual entitlement. So open up your Bibles with me, and we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, and primarily in verse 16. And we're going to unpack just the last half or last part of this verse. I'll have it on the screen for you. Verse 16 starts off, and this is what Pastor Dean preached on two weeks ago. He said, let the word of Christ dwelling you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And we talked about our worship music, because this is in the context also of singing, that our worship music is to be rooted in truth and reality and God's word, because that forms us and shapes us. And last week, I taught on singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. songs. So this week, we're going to focus on these, last, these eight words, singing with thankfulness in your hearts, to god to god So the New New Testament is written in what's called Koine Greek. It's basically a dead language. And if you go to school to be a pastor, usually you have to learn this dead language. And we don't know what it sounds like, but we, we do sort of know how to read it most of the time. It's a complex language, but it's really a blast to learn. And typically preachers are told, don't bring up the Greek in your sermons because the English translation is wonderful. And it is, and it's amazing. But there is something really, really interesting that happens in verse 16 that I have to draw your attention to. The word thanksgiving, here's what you would expect if you like study a little bit of Greek. There's a word called eucharisto. Uh, Does that sound like a word maybe some of you are familiar with? If you grew up Catholic or Orthodox, it's the Eucharist or what you celebrate in communion. And it means to give thanks. And so the idea here is that when we celebrate communion, we're thanking God for what he did for us in Jesus Christ providing salvation. And almost always when you see the word thanksgiving or thanks or thankfulness, you're going to find some version of the Greek word eucharisto, but that is not what you find here. Actually, what you find here is a different word, and it's the word charis, which is where we get our word grace. So let me like read to you how this might be understood by a first century Greek reader. When you sing, have a tender and gracious heart toward God. When you sing, there is a disposition of your heart that is to be gracious toward, tender toward God. Now last week, here's what we said. Every rule, every law is written because we have a tendency to do the opposite. What does the Apostle Paul know about the inclination of the human heart? That we are strongly tempted to not have a tender and gracious heart to our God. The pain and the betrayal of life harden our hearts to God. If you're here and you're young, and if I were to ask you the following question, has your life been hard? You would say, no, generally easy. Have you experienced deep pain? You said, no, wait. If you can get out of your teenage years without deep pain, you are blessed, and you are very lucky, and you're the rarity in all of human history. If you can make it through your 20s without deep pain, loss, you are one of the rarest human beings that has ever existed. You will not make it past your 30s. You will not make it past your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s. It's not going to happen. There's too much evil and sin in the world and in you and in the people around you to let you get by that long without experiencing deep pain. We talk about the three greatest pains the soul can endure, dad wounds, sex wounds, church wounds. Beyond that, there are other really still excruciating kinds of pains that we could experience, betrayal, unmet expectation, unexpected grief. I mean, literally, I could go on and on for three hours and talk about the things that wound our soul. And here's what happens. When these things happen, when this pain happens, our heart tendency is to look at God and to wag our fingers and say, you owe me. I don't deserve this. You are responsible For my happiness. Most Americans, greatest objection to Christianity and Jesus, it is not the historical reliability of the Bible. It is not the accurateness. It is not archaeology. It is not history. It is not all of that. It it comes down to this. Most people reject Christianity because they don't have a category of a good God who could stop pain and doesn't. That's what it comes down to for most people. And I have met a lot of atheists in my life. And almost every single atheist I have ever met less one are an atheist not because of the bad ideas of Christianity or its historical untrustworthiness or the Bible is a joke. They'll talk about that. But they don't really believe that at the end of the day. When you get to the the heart of hearts, they are mad that if there was a God and he could stop it and he didn't, they would never worship that God. So they just abandon the idea of deity altogether. Now, if you're in the room and you're watching or listening, I, I'm not bashing an atheist. I'm just saying anecdotally, of all the atheists I've ever met, at the core, they're mad at God because he could have stopped evil and he didn't, so they've rejected the idea of God altogether. There are exceptions, but they are very few and far between. And so what the Christian has to be able to do is acknowledge the reality that life is hard. And what the difficulties of life do is they harden our heart to God. And the Apostle Paul, who understands suffering probably better than anyone in this room, looks at you and says, when you are singing, come to God with a tender and gracious heart. The challenges of life, they're going to make you want to be angry at him and frustrated with him. People did this to you, not God. The evil one did this to you, not God. Sometimes you did this to you, not God. So when we come to worship him and to sing him, we got to really protect our own hearts that we are gracious and we are tender to God. Two weeks ago, we lost a dear brother here at Village Church. Most of you actually don't know him because he hasn't been able to come to church in a while. His name is Barry Bejet. And when I met him, he came to this church years ago, and he was diagnosed with both Parkinson's and MS. It is an excruciating end-of-life experience. And he had his mind with him to the very end at his wake a couple days ago. His wife, Joan, said this. I never heard him complain once. Are you kidding me? How many of you would have complained a lot? Of struck every time I was with Barry, here's what he would say. Michael, I love you. Michael, I love you. Michael, thank you. Michael, I love you. So grateful and encouraging. He would find anything and just affirm it. And I am confident that there are two scriptures that just impacted him and that God used to form him. Romans 8, 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The only thing that could keep Barry that genuinely and sincerely positive is his unshakable hope of the glories that are going to be revealed to him. That whatever this is, this is temporary. The pain of this world and the suffering of this world don't even compare to what is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17, and this is hilarious when you consider the apostle Paul wrote this. If you could see the scars all over his body, you would understand how ironic this is. Paul says, for this light, momentary affliction, it's preparing us, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Phil Church, when you sing, be gracious to God from your heart. Be gracious to him. The Lord is up to something. The Lord will repay you. All things will make sense if you give him time. I deserve an easy life. I deserve a pain-free life. You owe me happiness. No. I deserve hell. I deserve separation from God. I deserve discipline for my sin. And the fact that I sin, I'm going to speak for myself right now. As much as I do, and God keeps giving me grace and keeps giving me encouragement by his word and his spirit and his people and keeps letting me serve him, let alone preach the word of God, I am in awe of how dumb I am. And the grace of God in my life and in my heart the fact that he is regularly available and attentive to me, even after I was just willfully sinning, yelling or having an angry thought or feeling or not having self-control or whatever it might be, I am in awe that God dispenses grace upon grace upon grace to me every second of every day. And if you knew my heart, let alone just get to know your own heart, you should be equally in awe that the Lord is always available and attentive to you despite Maybe even sometimes your lack of graciousness to him and tenderness to him from your heart. Verse 16 in Colossians 3, it's sandwiched, obviously between two verses, 15 and 17. And here are the last words of verse 15. And be thankful. This is Eucharisto. This is that word. This is the outward expression. Give thanks. In verse 17, next, says this. Whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Giving thanks, eucharisteo, that's the word there. Giving thanks, this is the outward expression, to God the Father through him. The heart that is gracious toward God, thanks God easily. The heart that is hardened to God, mouths the words and has frustration and distraction. We, we have an English word that I actually really think captures the inner heart attitude, this thing deep down inside of us that God wants to grow, the thing that if you have this thing, it outworks itself in giving thanks. It's a word that will not surprise you, but I love this word, and you probably hear me say it at the end of most sermons and communion. The word is gratitude. and Here's a definition of gratitude. It's a disposition of humility for gifts undeserved. Grateful people, when this is their heart disposition, thank you. Entitled people want more. Even uncensored demand more. Entitled people say, I deserve this. You owe me. Give it to me. How could you withhold this from me? Gratitude says, I did not deserve this. You owed me nothing. Thank you, sincerely from the bottom of my heart. Uh, in the Book of Job, chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one, um, this is, I think, one of the most beautiful descriptions of a heart that is rooted in gratitude and not entitlement. Uh, there's a guy named Job, and the Lord allowed, ordained, or permitted uh, all, everything except for his life to be taken from him. It says this in verse twenty. Then Job arose. He tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and you would expect the finger wave and the, how could you? You'd owe me, I deserve better than this, I've been faithful to you. But it doesn't say that, it says that he worshipped. Verse 21 tells us what he said in his worship. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When grace falls on an entitled heart, what grows? What grows? Entitlement grows. When grace falls on a humble heart, what grows? Thankfulness, rooted in gratitude. I want to end this sermon. Don't worry, we have an hour and a half left. You'll be fine. With three so what's, and I want to really just kind of, I I just really want our hearts to understand why gratitude is so important to the Lord. So, what uh, number one? Uh, gratitude grows as we become aware of our own sin. And I want to just add this and its true consequences. When you, were, when you were first saved, you were broken by your sin. And, and, and in God's grace, he didn't show you the totality of all of your sin, but you saw that your sin separated you from God. And you you came before the Lord in this brokenness and you said, I'm sorry. Or as I said to the kids this week, it was Orsi Mike. Orsi Mike has say, if you've you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, have you told him to your face? I'm sorry. Now people are going to watch this like 10 years down the road, and they're going to be like, why is he talking? Like a weird, bad Australian accent. All right, I'm done. And, 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 and honestly, like if you've never been broken or sorry over your sin, and I say this out of all the love I can find, you, you probably might might not even be a real Christian at this point because one of the requirements is that you've come to God is said, I'm sorry. I am sorry for my sin. This is like, you've got to ask him for forgiveness and you actually have to believe that maybe you did something wrong, you know? But if you, if you have come to Christ and you've received forgiveness, you are receiving an unbelievable amount of grace every single day you're alive. Let me just dig down. Do you know that every time a Christian sins, every time, You deserve immediate death and hell. Every time. That is what we deserve. Myself, you, everyone in this room, all people alive. If that sounds extreme to you, I would say your understanding of the gospel is small. We need to go deeper. This is how vile sin is to the Lord. And how awesome what God did to Jesus by pouring his wrath on him truly was that the sin of all people throughout all of eternity who trusted in him, that the blood and the death of Christ, there isn't enough wrath poured out on his body, soul, and emotions to cover anybody and everybody throughout the entire world who will place their faith in Jesus Christ. So I, I am blown away because I sin a lot, you sin a lot, all people sin a lot. Maybe the older you get, you learn to do it in less devastating and destructive ways when you're a child. I am amazed that God still pours out his grace to me time and time and time again. And then I'm doubly amazed at how entitled I can be. And even though there are things I can know they're wrong, and I'll still do it, and this is entitlement working, and so much of the Christian life is wavering between entitlement and gratitude. Entitlement demands and takes advantage, and gratitude is on its knees saying, thank you, I don't deserve any of this. And then I have to get entitled Christian, how is that even possible? And it's ugly. And then I'm like, why am I doing that? I love you. Does anybody else have the same wrestling match within their own heart and soul? Yeah, this is the Christian life. Give me the second coming of Christ so this sinful body, we can be done with it and I don't have to wrestle with this anymore. But this is the wrestling match. And so we understand this. We we, we need, we need to understand the depth of our sin more and more. So when you find yourself sinning, apologize to God and own it. You know what happens is you personally own your sin? gratitude grows. And when you remember like, wow, God, I'm not just sorry that I lied or deceived or that I yelled or whatever it is, or I stole, whatever the thing is that you did. Like I deserved to be killed in that moment and to be sent to hell for that. And you were gonna give me grace upon grace. And in fact, there's nothing that I can do if I've trusted in Christ that could actually ever take away the salvation you have for me. It's the most permanent thing in the entire world. That's insanity. That should well up gratitude in our hearts So what number two, gratitude grows as we intentionally kill entitlement. Let's just remind ourselves, entitlement uncensored says, I deserve this, you owe me give it to me. I am not responsible. Entitlement symptoms include a complaining spirit, a demanding spirit, willful sin. It's like eating a tube of ice cream at night. It's so delicious. You're summoned to it, and then it ruins you, and you're up all night, and you feel terrible the next day. This is what entitlement is like. It's like something in us is drawn to it, but it ruins us in the process, and nobody wants that, especially if you're lactose intolerant. It's doubly worse, I want to take a moment, I want want to look at just four scriptures briefly that describe one of the most common outworkings of entitlement. The Bible calls it grumbling or complaining, and you know, stink peek, the Lord doesn't like it. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, and questioning doesn't mean you can't ask questions. The idea here is that you're like, how could you? It's like this accusational question asking to the Lord. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. There's something about the grumbling spirit that forms us more and more into this wicked and twisted generation. James 5, 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. This is funny. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, apparently unchecked grumbling makes God want to discipline us harshly. 1 Corinthians 10, I'll read verse nine, but I think 10 is up on the screen. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpent. talking about the Old Testament, Israelites, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Apparently unchecked grumbling tempts God to end your life. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood of Christ. That covers us. Numbers 11, 1, and the people complained. In the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed outlying parts of the camp. Some of you are like, wow, that's, that's harsh. Let me just like, make an analogy for you. If you're a mom or your a dad, a grandma or a grandpa, and you've ever raised kids, or you are raising kids, How many of you like it when your children are entitled? You owe me. I want a car. I deserve this. How many of you like love when your children are entitled brats? Anybody? (laughs) Nobody? Oh, that's what I thought, right? Because it's ugly. It's unbecoming. Because you see this as kids get into adolescence and older, entitlement, you got to start realizing everything you have is because your mom and dad bought it and permitted it. Oh, oh! you saved up your money for that thing? Guess what? The only reason you could even go to work and save is because I pay for all of your clothes, all of your bed, your linens, your laundry detergent, your toothpaste, you name it. Everything you have, I have paid for. I, I gave you the context that even allowed you to work so you didn't have to pay for all that so you could save up that money. You're welcome for letting you do that. If I made you pay your way in this home, you'd be broke because you are really expensive. And an entitled kid forgets the daily, hourly, minute-by-minute grace lavished upon them. And then all of a sudden, if you were to like, they go to the hospital and they realize how much money you pay for insurance, if you were to give them their insurance bill or their dental bill or their eyeglasses bill or their braces bill and say, figure it out, kid, they'd be like, I can't. It's all grace. And we forget as kids that everything we have is because our mom and dad gave it to us because they sustain us how much more every breath we have from God. If it is ugly in our children entitlement, how much uglier is it in the children of God and the Lord hates it? So what do you do when you see discipline in your children? You discipline them. When you see entitlement in your children, you discipline them. That's what you do. And what does the Lord do when he sees entitlement in his children? A good father disciplines his kids and our God is a perfect heavenly father. He wants to kill entitlement in us because it's ugly and it breaks the relationship. It makes us use him instead of be grateful to him for how wonderful and amazing he truly is. So at number three, gratitude grows as we sincerely thank God through singing. The Apostle Paul wants the people of God to come together and sing. And when we sing, he wants us to have a heart of graciousness to God, a heart of gratitude for everything he's done for us, a tender heart to him, even though the world is filled with pain and suffering, when we come before him, we sing with a heart that is gracious to him because he's not the one who did this to us. Sin did this to us. Satan did this to us. Other people did this to us. We did this to ourselves, not him. And so we come before him with a tender and a gracious heart to him. I want to to give you uh, an illustration. I want you to imagine with me, there's a husband and a wife. And the husband is angry with his wife. And the wife is angry with her husband. Now, some of you are like, we don't have to imagine. (laughs) This is (laughs) happening right now. (laughs) That was last week. That's right. They make make a great decision. They go to see a Christian counselor or pastor to get some help. So the pastor listens, and as he listens, and this is most marriages, as you kind of unpack the onion, you have two people who want to be loved and want to love. And and right now both of them aren't feeling loved. And when you don't feel loved, you get hurt and hurt unchecked turns to anger. And so you see this. This is life 101, marriage 101. It's been going on for a little while. So now they have some bad patterns. They haven't been acting lovingly. They've been turning on each other, yelling at each other, being more irritable, et cetera, demanding more, becoming a little bit more entitled than gracious in that moment, right? So the counselor, what he does is he separates them and he has each of them leave and go to different rooms and he goes and he sits down with the husband and he says, do you and your wife have a song? He says, yeah, there's actually a song on our wedding day that we sang. And, and he said, do you, rem- do you remember the song? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna call you in in a few moments and I want you to sing that song to her. Just the chorus. What? That's crazy. That's super weird. Yeah, maybe. But if you go to a doctor and the doctor says, take this medicine, then you say, yes, doctor, because he's smarter than you. So now, if you go to me, like my job is to help you as a couple, so trust me on this, but I'm terrible at singing. Doesn't matter. She doesn't care. I don't care. Nobody cares, right? Just sing the song. Practice for a little bit. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Goes over to the woman. Is your husband a good man? Not in the sense like, there's no one good but God. Not that sense. Like, do you really believe that your husband does want to love you? Yeah, I believe he wants to love you. And and by the way, this is most couples. Most couples really want to love well and be loved well. Like, that's, that's just Christian or not. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a list of 10 things. I want you to make a list of 10 attributes about your husband that you are specifically thankful for. And then I want you to connect them to a story. And in a little while, I'm going to have you come and I want you to talk to him and I want you to tell him the 10 attributes you're thankful for and I want you to put it to a story and I want you to be really sincere about this. So if you have to practice, that's fine. Puts him into a room. The husband's embarrassed and the husband looks at her and he starts singing. Super weird, right? Let's just call it on the table. What's happening in her heart? I guarantee you, If she believes that deep down in the bones of that man, he wants to love her, she's gonna be broken quickly. What's gonna happen in the man as he sings? His heart is gonna be tenderized. He's saying these words, and in that moment, he believes them and he wants them to be true. So he gets done. She's crying, he's embarrassed. And then she goes and she says, I thank God for you because you are, and it just really speaks to his heart, and then tells a story about this. And this goes on 10 separate illustrations. What is happening in her heart with every thank you to him? Her heart is softening. What's happening inside of his heart? His heart is receiving what it has actually longed for, which is to be somehow affirmed and encouraged. Maybe just to acknowledge, like, you do, you see, you see who I'm made to be, who I want to be, right? And, and I want you to imagine in this, like, there's no, like, sarcastic comments, like, most of the time you're this. Like, it's sincere. There's none of that garbage. And what happens in that moment is there is tenderizing. Now, is their marriage fixed? No way, because they got back in the car and they started fighting. <laughs> but what happened? Even for that moment, their hearts began to be tender to each other. Even just for a moment... They started to get a vision of the person and the person they knew they could be and they wanted to be. For a moment, they tasted what it felt like to be affirmed and loved, which most marriages are starving for. And we you to just take a moment. The Apostle Paul knows something. When you sing to God from your heart, and when your heart is tender to God, it changes you. Most of the time, we sing generically to some whatever, and we're just singing the melody. And I want you to imagine. I mean, God is a person. God, imagine him here with you. You are singing to him, particularly if you are mad at God today. There is unbelievable power in singing from your heart to God. It tenderizes you, and you know what? He loves it. And when you thank God, and you thank him for what you know to be true, and, and you even think in your brain as you're singing different lyrics about thankfulness and you're thankful for small graces and big graces that he's given you, it forms you and it shapes you. The, the problem with our thankfulness is sometimes we're not actually being gracious to God, we're just regurgitating words, which is why one of the things we've been doing this month in our worship is we've been asking our, our musicians to lead with a brief kind of devotional to get your brains re-acclimated. We're actually singing songs that mean something, and we want you to be intentional as you engage them because what's the habit and pattern? It's just to do it just to sing, to follow the melody, to not think about the words. And, and so one of the things we do as we grow in our spiritual maturity is we sing. We sing with gracious attitudes and dispositions to God and we sing with our mind and when the two come together, we are formed and God is glorified. If I were to look at all of you and say, do you want to bring, if you're a believer in Jesus, do you want to bring God glory? You're going to say, absolutely. Sing to God with a tender and gracious heart to him for who he is and what he's done and let the overflow of that gracious heart be a spirit of thanksgiving. And when you leave here, thank him. Thank him throughout the day. In all things, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, thank him. Bring him glory in that way. His heart loves it. And as you do, your heart becomes more and more tender and gracious to God. It's a beautiful thing. So this time I want to invite our musicians to come up, and and we're going to spend some time singing. And as they come up, I just want to ask all of you a question. What I said to our kids that came to my uh, Australian Albuyek survival tent, And I asked them all this question, have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? (laughs) Terrible accent, I know, but I'm getting better at it. But I looked at all of them and I just asked each kid individually, have you personally trusted in Christ? Have you told them, God, I love you, I'm sorry for my sins? (laughs) I believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again from the dead. Save me. Like, There are no second-generation Christians. There's only first-generation Christians. Everybody has to own their faith personally. Have you guys done that? And then I would have a conversation with the kids. I would say, you know what? Um, How many of you believe you go to heaven by being good? And then I wouldn't even let them answer because half of them would raise their hands. They were trying to. It said, the Bible never teaches that. The only people who are forgiven and go to heaven are forgiven. And the way you're forgiven is you ask Him to save you and forgive you. So I want to ask you, have you ever personally said to God, I love you and I'm sorry? I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe he was raised from the dead. Have you ever done that? And if you've never done that, you know when the best time to do that is? The Bible says today, right now. And I wanna invite you to trust in Christ. And so you can do this in your head, you can do this in your heart, you can just pray to God, I love you, I'm sorry, forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. And God's promise is that every single person, no matter who you are, no matter how evil you have been, He he gives you 100% eternal, secure forgiveness the moment you trust in Christ, and he gives you his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will help you worship. He will tenderize you to God, and all that frustration, you didn't know what to do with it in your heart. You're like, is it about God? Is it people? I don't know, I'm just angry. The Lord begins to tenderize you as you trust in him as the Holy Spirit works in you. And so if that's a decision you wanna make today, here's my encouragement to you. Talk to him, pray to him, ask him to forgive you and save you, and then tell somebody. Talk to us, tell somebody you you came with, a family member, and if you're like sort of embarrassed by that, because you're like, I haven't been a Christian for a while, they've been wanting me to trust in Christ, I don't wanna do it because it's kind of embarrassing, I don't wanna do it because they told me to do it, it's kind of weird, forget about all that, who cares? If you trust in Christ, kill all your pride, tell somebody, angels in heaven are rejoicing, and we wanna rejoice with you, and help you take a next step with the Lord. Amen? the man.